0: Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders from them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Matt. You can all be seated. All right, here we go. Uh, I didn't introduce myself. If you're new or visiting, my name is Evan. And uh, welcome to Park Hill Church. My wife, Sandy, and I, she's the woman leading worship with me. She and I have the joy of leading this church. And, okay, we today are doing a deep dive into a very central topic in the New Testament. We're doing a deep dive. And the topic is the practice of fasting. Whoa, yeah. So I, how many of you are like, I just hope Evan hits fasting, I wanna be inspired today. Like, you woke up, you're like, I just wanna talk about fasting. No, so here's why we're doing this. We're talking about fasting for at least three reasons. Number one, because we're in the book of Acts and fasting plays a central role in some of the most critical decisions the church made. Number two reason, because it's the season of Lent and our church is in the middle of a digital fast, For Lent, right now, and so it makes sense. And the third reason we're doing this is because fasting is part of our rule of life. So we've been talking about a rule of life for a while. What is a rule of life? Talk about this for a few years. Let's get some clarity here. A rule of life is a schedule and a set of daily, weekly, monthly, or whatever practices that help us create space in our busy world for us to be with Jesus, become like Him, and do what He did. Or in Jesus' words, to live to the full in the kingdom of God, and in alignment with our deepest passions, what we really want. We believe God knows how to get us to what we actually want in his kingdom. His way is the right way. So um, uh, that word rule of life, that word rule, it comes from the Latin word regula that carries the idea of a trellis or a guidepost. Think of like the trellis in a vineyard that keeps the fruit bearing fruit, or like a bowling alley, the guardrails that keep kids from just guttering, right? These these guide rules, there are these rules. In the same way that a vine needs a trellis to lift off the ground so it can bear fruit and not get diseases, we also need a a rule as a kind of support structure to organize our lives around what Jesus says, abiding in the vine. And so our church has been talking about the rule of life for years, at least going back to fall of 2021, when we did our future church series, and we've been slowly introducing this over the years, and now for 2024, we're walking through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, and we're taking intentional breaks to focus on each of the eight practices in our rule of life. So by the end of the year, the idea is you actually have a paper you can see like in your community, like these are, this is how we follow Jesus. These are the things we do together. And here's the eight specific practices. They come from the life of Jesus. The early church practices them. And and here's just the list. This is how we kind of boil it down. Scripture reading, fasting, silence and solitude, Sabbath, and then community and vocation, which is like your, your career is not just a career so that you can retire, but it's a kingdom calling that heaven is invading earth through. And then hospitality and generosity. These eight practices soaked in prayer are what we believe our church is called to do and be in the world together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's just a sneak peek at the the chart that went out to all your community leaders this week. So there's all eight practices on the top and then your rhythms on the left. You could just write in like daily I read scripture for 10 minutes or 20 or whatever. Fasting, I do that. This many times a month or whatever. And so by the end of the year, you'll, you'll all be able to talk about what you actually do. And so um, you can download that chart from our resources tab and our website. And so, so last month, David Wade talked about the first one, scripture reading. And today that brings us to the topic of fasting. Okay. So we're taking a break from like the chapter by chapter thing in Acts in order to do a deep dive. And you guys, I think today's going to be uh, kind of one of those landmark uh, teachings and conversations you'll get to refer back to, and say, "Oh yeah, this is what we value." Uh, and we're going to see today how the writers of the New Testament, they connect all kinds of stuff together. They connect fasting with morality and, and whole person holiness and even our sexuality, and what it means to flourish as embodied beings. They connect it all together. In a very compelling and beautiful way. We're going to hopefully see that today. So, where to start? First of all, we are followers of Jesus. Which means we follow someone who launched his entire ministry on earth with a fast from food. Right? And then after that, he started teaching. And he talked like he expected his followers to fast, too. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you fast, not if you fast, right? And in the book of Acts, we see the first Christians taking Jesus very seriously. And prayer with fasting together, it actually drives two of the most critical decisions in church history. Matt read them at the beginning. Here they are again. It's these two moments, Acts 13. You realize what that is. That's the very first church planting trip. Like that never occurred to anyone, <laughs> to go around and establish churches or gatherings around Judaism or this or that religion. That's not a thing until this moment. Totally new, totally novel, innovative, creative business venture, right? You could put it in business terms. And, and the Holy Spirit speaks to all of them as they're fasting and praying and says, set apart for me these two guys. For the work to which I've called them. And it came out of fasting. And then the next chapter, chapter 14, it's this other moment where, specifically through fasting, is how the elders of every church got appointed. That's a pretty big deal. The Spirit almost uses fasting as this communication path for sparking radical change as people are consecrating themselves, committing themselves to God's heart. It's very beautiful. So, we could say it this way, fasting with prayer is one practice, the one practice from Jesus that shows up in the early church, specifically in key moments of major change, innovation, and pre-growth decision-making. So, I mean, I have to ask, if that's true, why does fasting seem to be like not even an afterthought for us today? The most neglected, maybe, of the practices. So how many of us, don't show your hands, Uh, that'll be awkward, but how many of us have a regular rhythm of fasting with prayer on like your weekly, monthly, or annual iCal like it's in there? Chances are not many of us, right? Uh, Why is that? I'm not sure, but I'm with you in that. I don't know why that's, it's just just not on the forefront. Uh, But what I am sure of is that fasting might be more relevant than ever for followers of Jesus today because we live in a place and time of history where we don't know what it's like to be hungry. We don't know what it's like to have any of our appetites unmet. When we're uncomfortable, what do we do? We just feel like, go to the fridge. I just heard a stat, the average American opens the fridge 22 times a day or something. So that's not to say we eat out of it, we just open it. It's like, I don't know, and then you go back, you know? (laughs) We go to the fridge, we find pleasure in food or drink, we cover up our anxieties and our fears and our shame by consuming pleasure, which isn't bad, God made pleasure. But when we hide from anxiety through it, what's going on there? But when you fast before God, all of a sudden you notice your body and you're a whole new level of self-awareness, right? And what we're noticing right now is a church in a digital fast is that our devices have become so seeped into our lives that we tend to soothe and distract ourselves, not just with food, but with phones, Uh, right? So we know this, it's important to talk about it though. And with all the modern extras, extra food, extra information, extra media around us, it's easy to be just swept away by the flow of really moral compromise, it's easy to just swept away in a culture of moral compromise. And so fasting comes in as a gift, as a gift from Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit that allows us to deprive ourselves from food for a time in order to be with Jesus in a closer way. And fasting almost becomes this key that unlocks a spiritual depth and access to God's presence in unique ways so that we become like him. Or in biblical language, We be holy as God is holy, he says. And and so the goal for today is to talk about this, talk about becoming a community of holiness and a culture of moral compromise through the practice of fasting. And and so this is why I say fasting might be more relevant than ever for Jesus followers because (laughs) in our day, most people live by a standard. Well, this is basically the standard. It's, it, you know, this is, this is the ultimate good in our culture. Follow your heart as long as no one gets hurt. I mean, if you do that, if you like, follow, do, do your dreams and don't hurt anyone, if you're doing that all the way, our culture goes, you're living the perfect life. You're a your good person, right? And, and so, so it's such a popular idea. It's the water we swim in that it's worth stopping and going, huh. Let's take a second look at this. And when we stop and think about that statement, there's a couple problems we, we start to see. And the first problem is that first part, those three words before the comma, follow your heart. I tried to make a, a vegan joke at the last gathering because follow your heart is like vegan butter, but it did not land. So I'm joking about the joke and it landed 10 times better right now. Um, so follow your heart. Um, what's the problem with that? I mean, it's inspiring. Like, it's like, I get it. The idea is your, your gut feelings, your inner intuitions will tell you right from wrong and guide you to your wishing star or whatever. You don't need an outside authority. You don't need an outside authority to tell you how to live your life. You have everything you need inside of you. And that sounds so encouraging. And there's some truth in there. Obviously, God created you full of potential and beauty. And there's goodness. God looked at creating humans and he said, I, you are good. Absolutely broken very deeply by by sin, but created good. And so follow your heart. It's inspiring. The tricky part is our hearts are a mixed bag, right? Like which part do I follow on which day after which movie that I watch? You know, like which part of me do I follow? Our hearts are complex and contradict, full of sin and great vibes at the same time. Uh, right, And so, so the classic example, John Mark Comer came two Sundays ago to speak for our even, an evening event in this room. And he brings up this, this uh, illustration all the time. Grocery store aisle. You guys know, you, you look to the left, you see Fitness Magazine, and you're like, I, three easy steps to washboard abs. I want it. I'm in. I can do those three steps today. Like, I'm in. And, and then you look 45 degrees to the right, and suddenly you have a new want, and it is 10 comfort food recipes for spring 2024. And, uh, and, and you're inspired. Those are in conflict, okay? Washboard abs, 10 comfort food recipes. They don't happen at the same time, but both of those desires are at war in me. Now I'm at war inside. So, okay, that's the problem with follow your heart. What about the second part of that sentence? As long as it doesn't harm anyone. It's a really good idea not to be harmful to people on purpose. Absolutely. Here's a problem with that statement as far as I can see. Harm requires knowing what's good and evil. And so does love. Being loving requires knowing and everyone who's experiencing the love agreeing on what's the good. Right? So to harm... Or to love a person, it requires an agreed-upon, shared knowledge of what's good for the person. So the real question becomes, how are you going to define good and evil? And ultimately, who says? Who gets to define them? So I'll bring up a catchphrase for today that's popular. You know, love is love. And I get it. That's a powerful emotional argument in support of non-traditional romantic relationships. Love is love. But after five seconds of critical thought, love as love st- still leaves us wondering what love is, right? It doesn't actually add any information to the conversation. Um, so here, here we are. The reality is for society to agree on the meaning of love, hate, harm, this would require some ultimate standard of moral authority saying, this is what love looks like, everyone. This is what hate and harm look like right but our culture rejects the idea of an ultimate standard an ultimate morality that exists outside of us instead our culture appeals to other things two things our culture appeals to to try to find out what's right or wrong naturalism or emotivism so naturalism what's that it's the belief that nothing exists except the things in the natural world, nothing, there's nothing else. There's no unseen anything. This is Nacho Libre's wrestling buddy. I don't believe in God. I believe in science, right? You know, esqueleto. So here's the problem with esqueleto. Biology cannot give you morality. It can do a lot of awesome things. It can do really things that, that then we call are good, like healing people of sicknesses. Uh, any, ask any scientist, though. Science can tell you what is but it cannot tell you what ought to be. Uh, that's morality. So just an example in the form of a question. Here it is. Question, is it wrong to discriminate? Like, based, like discrimination based on sex, ethnicity, gender, age, religion. Is it wrong to discriminate? I mean, how, okay, however you answer that, I promise you, you did not get that from science <laughs> or survival of the fittest, Right? Because even like leading atheists and historians, not Christians, secular historians of our day, they agree that science is not what gave us the basis of human rights that we champion today. No, Western civilization traces our ideas about human rights and equality directly back to Genesis chapter one. All human beings created in the image of God, full stop. Naturalism does not give you that, does not give you morality. And then the other one that culture appeal, appeals to is emotivism. What's emotivism? It's like looking to your gut feeling. I just feel like this is right. This is like, I don't know, it just feels right. Or I know in my heart it's a good thing. Or the Christian version, the Lord gave me a piece about this. Whatever. You know? <laughs> we all do this. It's like, yeah, I wasn't 100%. I was, I was pretty squishy on my taxes But, you know, I just feel like the government's so corrupt, I'm not worried about it. Or, yes, we're sleeping together, but we love each other and we plan on getting married. Or, I'm not greedy, you should see my neighbor's stuff, their house is way bigger. Or, I probably shouldn't have talked about that person like that, but, you know, I just feel like someone needed to know the truth and I had to verbally process, so. We do this stuff all the time emotivism it's right or wrong because my guts right now say which raises some pretty big questions like okay so how do we know what's right from wrong who gets to choose why does this group have moral authority and not that group now what's the standard that we're all looking to here So moral relativism has tons of different answers to these questions, but we follow the Jesus way, right? We follow the Jesus way, which means we humbly receive Jesus's mental maps to reality. Jesus has a map for navigating reality, and Christians are people who think his map is the right one and accurate, and God knows how to be better humans than, God knows how to be a human better than any of us do. And so Jesus' map for navigating reality, it comes to us how? Through the four Gospels and the writings of the New Testament. That is our highest moral authority. This is who we are. You guys, this is what it means to be the church. Billions and billions. Some estimate 16 to 18 billion Christians have lived from the time of Jesus to today. And we are a family that believe Jesus' maps to reality, his moral maps, are 100% trustworthy and good and beautiful and are the only maps that lead us into what Jesus calls life to the fullest. And guess what? Jesus' way is open to all people. Everyone without discrimination is equally invited to agree with Jesus' mental maps and follow him into life to the full. And his map comes to us through scripture and it's based on the life, the inner life of the Trinity itself and the inner nature of the creator. And so the more we align our life to the teachings of Jesus, to his mental maps to reality, the more we flourish and thrive in a relationship with God and his sacred order. How do we do this? Here we go. This is why we're here today. Through the practice of fasting with prayer. The Holy Spirit opens us to greater alignment and flourishing with God's own life. And in scripture, there's a word for that God-life alignment. It's holiness. Holiness. How did you react to that word just now? How that word make you feel? I know the word holiness comes with some baggage for some of us. Maybe you immediately go to fear or shame. But holiness is too important of a word to abandon. One of the most repeated commands in all of the Bible is God saying, be holy as I am holy. And you guys, Jesus is our transcendent moral authority, and his authority, listen, Jesus is, his moral authority is never a condemning or shaming accusation, ever. It's an invitation to flourish. Holiness literally means unique or set aside for a special purpose. Part of our problem with the idea of holiness is that it's usually defined negatively, like separate from bad stuff. Like, don't do the bad stuff. That's holiness. But that's not complete in Scripture. In the Bible, holiness is not just about being separate from the bad, but being set aside for something beautiful and good, and purposeful. Even the pots and the pans in the temple in the Old Testament, when they were declared holy, the priest wasn't saying, those, those are evil pans, and these are moral pans, or whatever. He was, he was saying, these pans are holy, meaning, oh, they're for a special holiday. They're for a unique purpose, a celebration in God's family. That's holy, that's holy, you're holy. When you become a follower of Jesus and believe Jesus' blood on the cross pays for your sins, you admit you need forgiveness, you suddenly become a holy, set aside for special celebration, child of God, in God's house. Do you realize that's holiness? And of course that means you're separate from the stuff that dehumanizes you, of course. But that's not the end of the story. It's for beauty and life and full humanity. In God's kingdom. And so so that is where fasting comes in. Fasting becomes this whole person invitation to holiness. Because you're not just a soul in a body. Like your soul is you and your body is the Uber driver. Right? Like you're not just a soul in a vehicle of a body taking you to where you want to be. We we are what Mark Cortez calls both embodied souls and ensouled bodies. Your body is you. Your soul is you, and God loves the whole you. As you. This is why fasting from physical food becomes such a powerful spiritual practice because it affects your whole person. You see that? Now, I'm going to take us further into that idea for a few minutes right now, just a few minutes of this teaching right now. Uh, We're going to look at a fascinating chunk of one of the early church letters. And it's a letter by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to meet Paul. Paul later in the Book of Acts series. And in this this letter, Paul makes some mind-blowing connections between our bodies and our food and our morality and even our sexuality. He connects them all together in a way that just blows my mind. And actually speaks volumes around whole person holiness as God's kids. So, So the next five minutes or so, or four or five minutes, might feel disconnected or out of left field, like, hey, wait, I thought this was about fasting why is Evan suddenly talking about sex? Like, what, is, what just happened? I promise you, they're not disconnected at all. According to Paul, they're all linked together. Watch. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this. He says, you say, writing to the Corinthians, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. He was speaking to the common view of the day that, hey, live it up. Physical stuff like food and bodies, they don't really matter. Your inner soul is all that matters. Your soul is the real you. Your body's just the Uber car that gets you to where you want to be. So eat, drink, live it up. Tomorrow we die. So basically, ancient Corinthians are just like Americans. is basically what what we're kind of seeing. Like, am I right? That's very similar. Some things never change. Like, hey, what I do with my own body is my own personal, private, moral choice to make. My body's just a thing. My body's desire for sex is no different than my body's desire for food or drink or sleep. It's just another urge, just another bodily urge. But listen to Paul's response to this. Listen to what he says. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Okay, loaded paragraph there. So much there. Just a few points to observe. Number one. Look at that first underlined part. It says, basically, he's saying the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And the word for that in the Greek is pornea. And it's all through the New Testament. It pops up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Pornea, it's this catch-all term that refers to any sexual activity with someone you are not married to in a one-man, one-woman marriage. That's what it means all through the New Testament and Old Testament. And Paul's like, the body is not for that. The body is not for that, but for the king, for the Lord. Meaning, we were created for God. Like, your whole body, God is so for your body. Your body, God is for it. And and so good Catholic theology would say that even our sex drive is about far more than our body's desire for pleasurable release. But about our whole person desire for communion and contribution for intimacy, and for generating life. And listen, not even marriage can satisfy that ache fully. There's a lot of lonely married people. Only life with God can satisfy what our sex drives are actually pointing to. Whether you're single for life or married for life, the same. So number one, the body's not meant for sexual morality. Number two, Paul, the point he makes is Jesus came back from the dead in a body. That tells us something. (laughs) That means we will too. Did you know your body will come out of the ground? So whatever you think heaven is, some disembodied nirvana, spiritual, floaty, angel, baby, cloud thing, or I don't know, what will it be like? What will I don't know. There might be a time where we'll be disembodied, but guess what? It's all moving toward a resurrection that the church has confessed for 2,000 years where our bodies will come out of the ground exactly like Jesus' resurrected body did. That is our final hope. Christianity is earthy. Your body will rise from the earth and live in the new heavens and new earth in a body. You know what that means? Your relationship with God will take place in your body forever. Our body matters. It's the, it's the, loc- the locus point of your relationship with God forever. Because number three point he makes in that text, our bodies are united with Jesus. In the spiritual realm, we're one with Jesus and he's one with us. Paul believes what we do with our bodies in this world, it's Jesus is actually doing stuff through our bodies since we're members of his body. So therefore, point four, sex is not just a biological act, it's the fusion of two souls. And Paul's language is straight out of Genesis there, the line about two becoming one flesh. So what, Paul? So what? Well, here's so what. He says, so flee from sexual immorality. All other sins are what... He's like, run for your life from sexual morality. Why? Because according to Paul, we are harming our entire person. We are doing violence against our whole person, regardless of consent or culture's mantra of follow your heart as long as it doesn't hurt anybody or whatever. Sexual immorality dehumanizes and dishonors the body that God created and loves and has given infinite value to. I want to emphasize that hard. I don't think I emphasized it hard enough at last gathering. God loves your body. He is for your body. He's not against it. You're invited to trust that today. There is no shame in this mess. If, if, if I inadvertently cast shame, then I pray I would be convicted and and the Holy Spirit would stop that from happening because God is so for your body that any mention of living against God's grain for your body, I pray the fruit wouldn't be shame, but it would illuminate the flourishing that he does have for you, the holy repurposing that he does have for you today by you responding in trust to his presence. So, so, goodness, goodness, This is why Paul ends by emphasizing what a gift holiness actually is. Your body is the unique dwelling place of God in the world. Look at this. He says, because don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You're bought at a price. You owe nothing. Your debt is cleared. You belong to the Creator now, who literally defines what's good, and He has that good for you. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Notice what a high view of the body that is, and a high view of sex. In some circles of the church, there seems to be this warped view of sex as dirty or bad. It's part of the unfortunate emphasis of 90s purity culture, I believe. And so it's easy to miss that Scripture's view of the body and human sexuality is actually higher than any view in culture. It's not lower, it's higher. It's the highest view of the human body you can have. We are not simply souls in body vehicles that just drive us around to what we want our sexed bodies, our emotional bodies, our physical bodies, our whole person temples of the creator God of love who wants more good for us than we could ever dream up. The brilliant Nancy Piercy writes this in her famous book, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. Why? Because it's sex and sexuality has always been one of the areas where we as Jesus followers are really most different from the world Ever since the beginning where Roman culture and Jewish culture was like, get married in order to matter. And Jesus was like, I'm not. And then celibate single people are like pedestaled even higher, given even more honor for a lot of church history. So sexuality has always been one of those areas where Jesus followers are like a beacon of hope. There's a better way than just cultural narratives. Where we function as this, Flourishing family of marrieds and singles, old and young, all together. And so I'm talking about bodies. And the question is, how do we do this with our bodies as the body? And is there a practice that helps us? Orient away from all the moral relativism and toward holiness. Yes, there are many practices. And at the top of this list is fasting. Fasting. So to wrap up, I wanna talk about the why and the how. Real quick, real real simple. Why do we fast? Three basic reasons, to starve the flesh, feed the spirit. Reason number one, what's the flesh? It's a weird word, it's like everyone has flesh. Uh, Well, the flesh is what the New Testament writers call that primal animal part of your body that's run by survival instincts, pleasure urges, right? It's like when you're in the grocery store and you didn't mean to buy Funyuns, but you did. You, you You just, it's an impulse buy. That's literally the, the flat. It's just it's not bad necessarily. It's just an impulse. So uh, this is what scientists call your animal brain. And one of the best ways to decrease the influence of your animal brain is to literally not give your body food, right? So for thousands of years, Christians have realized both the Garden of Eden temptation and Jesus in the wilderness temptation involve food. Apparently, there's this mutual relationship between our level of self-discipline with food and our level of self-discipline with sin in general. As Thomas Akempis said a million years ago, restrain from million, a millennia ago, sorry. Uh, He said this uh, a thousand years ago, restrain from gluttony and you shall more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. And so one of the first things you notice if you've ever fasted, uh, like spiritual fasting, As a Christian, you notice your desire for sin does not go away, uh, but it does go down. And your desire for God goes up. Your awareness of what he might be doing goes up. And so fasting is a way to turn your body from an enemy in the fight into an ally. And and so second reason we fast is to amplify our prayers. Fasting is a way of praying with your body. Like Scott McKnight calls it body talk groaning beyond words, and it's a way of growing in spiritual power. As much as we hate to admit, there's a direct relationship between our level of holiness and our level of power in the Holy Spirit. The holier we live, the more power we have access to from the Holy Spirit. So fasting is a way to grow in holiness and grow in spiritual power, and this seems to be the best explanation behind that really weird story in Luke 9. Luke 9 where Jesus comes to his disciples and they're trying to cast out this demon and they can't? You know that story? Like, Jesus, why can't we cast out this demon? We could cast out other demons. And Jesus is like, oh wow, yeah, this one comes out only by prayer and fasting. So there's like weird power levels going on that we don't understand, we just obey. And so finally, the third reason we fast very simply is to stand in solidarity with the poor. And this is the fasting of Isaiah 43. It's a way to stand with the 98% of the world that has a lot less than we fairly comfortable San Diegans do. Very practical, fasting frees you to take the money you would have spent on pad thai takeout and give it to those with no food at all. Super ancient way of fasting. And which brings us finally to how, how do we fast? How does Park Hill fast? Not just any, but we actually are calling ourselves to this. So what does that look like? Again, fasting is when you go without what? Food. food. Good. So that's biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is going without food. Now, our church is doing a digital fast right now, which is not really a biblical fast at all. It's really just a catchy name for, like, being mature, um, <laughs> which is a great thing to do, you know, <laughs> Abstain from excess media in order to focus on things that matter more. That's a really great thing to do. But fasting is a specific Christian practice, a whole body practice that's very hard for Westerners to wrap their minds around because you literally don't involve your mind so much as your stomach. Right? It's a way of saying yes to Jesus' work, not just by reading a book, but through your stomach. And it's a deep work. For over a 1,000 years, fasting was a core practice of disciples of Jesus. Christians would fast twice a week. Wednesday and Friday was the universal practice for centuries. Uh, It started to fade away only a couple hundred years ago with the Enlightenment. But before that, here's John Wesley on fasting. In the 1700s, he says, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, he like takes a jab at them, so-called Methodists, he's all judgy, and he's like, he's like, both in England and in Ireland, who following the same bad example, they've entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast twice in the month. Dang, John. And then, and then he finishes, the man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. And I'm not saying he's, that's Bible, that's not God's word. That's John Wesley, who's a great man of God. I'm showing you this just to, just to show you We've come a long way. There's, we've come a long way. Very few followers of Jesus fast on a regular basis. And yet, we believe this is one of the most important practices from Jesus for our time. And so, the call for Park Hill is the, the baseline is that we invite you to work towards some kind of weekly fast, some kind, maybe it's one meal a week, where you uh, commit to God that time and that prayer. Maybe for some of you, it'll, you'll be revisiting a practice that you maybe have been already doing or have left behind, bring, maybe bring it back. Uh, Sandy and I, we do this, we have for several years now, every Wednesday we fast from Tuesday dinner to Wednesday dinner, so we just don't eat between those two meals, and we just pray every week in that way. Usually I'm doing sermon prep during that day, and it was hard at first to like think deeply and, and write and like read and prepare, prepare a sermon when you're hangry. But uh, but I've gotten I've gotten somewhat used to that. So you're more than welcome to join us in that same Tuesday to Wednesday rhythm. If you want to, that's kind of cool to do as a church. But here's the deal: starting this week, we're launching a four week conversation about fasting in our communities. It's the last four weeks of Lent too. That really worked out schedule wise. Uh, so whether you're new to biblical fasting or you're like a veteran, we're all in this together. For the back half of Lent all the way up to Easter. And, and so we're going to finish strong with our digital fast on Palm Sunday. And then, listen, Palm Sunday to Good Friday, that whole week of Holy Week, we're doing seven prayer again. I don't know if you remember seven from years past. We're bringing it back. It is a week of prayer with optional fasting uh, for multiple churches in San Diego. So not just Park Hill, Neighbors, and All Saints our family of churches but also uh, new city church and communion and uh, restored church just texted said they might want to be involved maker's church is helping plan it so at least seven churches in the city each meeting together at different locations all week long and you can find out more info at sevenprayer.com starts on palm sunday night goes all the way to good friday palm sunday's gathering is here in the building good friday's gathering is back here in the building and it'll be multi-church involvement. So it'll be pretty cool. Unity, prayer, fasting, the whole thing. So uh, now, in a teaching on food, very practical teaching, I think it would be amiss not to speak to uh, the the weakness side in all of us when it comes to this. And I wanna talk about the reality of disordered eating and just make a quick mention. Because last year we saw people not practice fasting because they were discerning with their communities that doing so would not be wise for them. And I think that's beautiful communication. So beautiful to have conversations among your community about about these things. And also last year we saw healing for some who struggle with disordered eating. And they had sat out previous years, but last year they're like, you know what? With my community in the know... And i talked to my doctor, and we're praying. I'm actually going to fast with my community for the first time in years, and they experience radical healing too. So so wherever you're at in your relationship with food, our goal is for our church to be a place where all of us can move toward health and healing when it comes to both eating. Eating and drinking is central to Christianity. We're going to do it today with bread and cup, and you're going to do it this week in your communities. And fasting. So eating and fasting together. We don't do this Christian thing alone. And so, there you go. To end, you guys, you've got to keep the goal in mind. And it's the experience of delight in God. That's the goal of all the practices, to experience delight in God. Fasting really reveals what controls us. <laughs> How many of you are feeling this digital fast? Man, I I, I want to watch a movie every night. I never wanted it this bad, now that I can't. That's what fasting does, too. We feel anything but delight at first. We feel hangry, anxious, sad. Realize how dependent we are on food to feel happy. Or in case of this year, digital distraction, to be happy. But the gift of fasting teaches us to be happy even when we don't get what we want. Right? Eating or fasting, rather, fasting is practicing the reality of suffering that we just want to deny in normal life. And so, fasting is a way of training your body to be happy when it doesn't get what it wants. That way, when life happens, or your boss happens, or your child, or your parent, or even God Himself doesn't give you what you want, you don't freak out and go ballistic. You're calm, at peace. Because you know the deep joy of contentment in God, and so fasting is feeding on the deep joy from the one source that can never be taken away, and that's God. And that's why our motivation to fast, it has to be a deeper experience of God himself. This is why Paul calls our bodies temples, the Holy Spirit's house, your body. What a beautiful image. And through fasting and choosing holiness, we actually purify our temple in order to see God. That's what our body is for. It's a place to be close to God. No wonder Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's our motivation for fasting and holiness and radical obedience and all the surrender. All of that is, it's Jesus I ache for you. You're my delight and my joy, Jesus. That's what it's for. So can I pray for us? We're going to move into worship now.